Good morning. Ohayo gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. What a blessing it is to gather together as brothers and sisters in the Lord as uh, we worship our Heavenly Father. This morning we are going to continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. As of late, we've been following the count of Jesus' second tour through the region of Galilee, and the emphasis has been upon God's Word. We began our study of Luke chapter 8 by looking at God's Word and our hearts in verses 1 through 15 in the parable of the soils. Uh, Then we followed that up with last week's study pertaining to God's Word and our actions by looking at verses 16 through 21. And as we continue our way through chapter 8 this morning, we're going to be looking at a study that I've entitled Faith Over Fear. Faith Over Fear. Our text is going to be Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 39. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, will you please open them up and make your way to Luke chapter 8. If you uh, don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, a number of the chairs underneath you have Bibles under them. Uh, Feel free to reach down and grab one of those. We do think it's important that you're able to follow along. Okay, Luke chapter 8. Okay, once you're there, I'd like to invite you to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to be reading from um, my translation. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I encourage you to do your best to follow along. Okay, Luke continues his account of Jesus and his ministry there in the region of Galilee with the following in verse 22. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Verse 26, then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and with a loud voice said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then 
the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for your word, Lord, that we can come here this morning, we can open it up, and we can uh, just allow your word to minister to our hearts. And Lord, I do just pray that we come this morning with expectant hearts, with uh, anticipation that you desire to speak to us, Lord, that you want us to hear from you. Lord, we don't want to just have an intellectual study where we learn facts, Lord, but we want to allow your word to penetrate our hearts. And so, Lord, we ask, do that work you desire to do. Send forth your word in power. May we receive all that your spirit desires to say. And may we leave this place having heard from you. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. As of late, the emphasis in Luke's gospel has been upon the word of God, how we are to keep God's word in our hearts, how we are to share God's word with the world around us, and how we are to put God's word into action in our everyday living. Well, here in our text, we have two different instances where faith in God's word and faith in God's work is put to the test. And in both instances, the challenge comes in the form of fear. Fear is that which usually keeps us from trusting in God's word and from doing God's work. Fear holds us back and keeps us from stepping out in faith and trusting God for big things. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 25 states that the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy, reminding him of how God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power and of love and of a sound mind. And while faith in the Lord and His Word will empower you, fear will often paralyze you and it will keep you from moving forward in the Lord. And we want to be men and women that step out in faith, that step up in faith, not men and women who cower in fear. And so let's see what we can't learn from our text this morning in these two different examples regarding faith and fear. We'll begin with this first section by reading once again our opening verse, verse 22. It says, Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. Jesus had just finished addressing the multitude and telling them about how those who hear the word of God and do it are his family, his mother, and his brothers. And now it was time for them to depart from this particular area and head across to the other side of the lake. Now, the lake that they are crossing is the Lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Okay, three different names, one body of water. 
It was a good-sized lake that was uh, harp-shaped or pear-shaped, kind of depending upon uh, your angle, your perspective. The length of the body of water was about 13 miles, and the width at its largest point was about 7 miles across. We aren't told here in Luke's Gospel, but we are told in Mark's Gospel that it was when evening had come that they decided to cross over the lake. That's in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And so Jesus, he gets into a boat and his disciples along with him, and they prepare to set sail for the other side of the lake. And Jesus says to his disciples, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. I want you guys to pay attention to that and to note that, because this will be important in remembering uh, something to remember in our study this morning. With Jesus' word to cross over, the disciples obediently obliged, and they launched out. Let's see what happened after they launched out. Read with me verses 23 and 24. It says, But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. We'll pause right there. It had been a long day. Evening had come, and as they set sail across the lake, Jesus decided to get a little shut eye, to get some rest. We're told that Jesus fell asleep while they sailed across the lake. Again, Mark's gospel gives us a little more detail, saying that he fell asleep in the stern of the boat, the very back of the boat. And then all of a sudden, a windstorm came down upon the lake, and the boat they were in began filling with water. Okay? And they were in jeopardy or great danger, your translation may read. Now, it was somewhat normal okay, for the Sea of Galilee to experience these sudden storms coming upon it. You see, the Sea of Galilee is several hundred feet under sea level and is surrounded by high hills that are over 2,000 feet above sea level on the eastern side. And there are a number of valleys in between these hillsides that create these wind tunnels for the cool, relatively dense air from those hillsides to drain down upon the warm, moist air that was above the waters of the Sea of Galilee. And the mixing of these cold and warm airs would create sudden storms that would pop up upon the waters. This was a a good-sized windstorm that came upon the disciples. Mark's gospel says it was a great windstorm, while Matthew's gospel describes it as a great tempest that came upon the disciples suddenly. That word tempest, it speaks almost like of a tornado, and so this is a great windstorm. Remember as well that they are crossing the lake at night. There was no sunlight to help them see the waves that were forming and crashing upon them. It was dark, the wind was blowing, the waves were crashing, and we're told that the boat was beginning to take on water. Can you imagine the scene? Okay, place yourself there. Um, I don't know about you, have you, if you've ever been out on a body of water in the middle of the night where there's no light around you. I mean, imagine some of you Navy guys uh, might have an idea of what that would look like. Um, I know there are, uh, I believe there are runway lights on the top of the aircraft carriers, but without those lights, you, you probably wouldn't see a thing out there in the middle of the ocean. I remember there was this one time I was caught out uh, on a lake trying to make it back to a campsite where we had anchored off of the beach during a vacation trip. We had kind of went to the launch and and met with some people, and it kind of got a little bit late, and I had to get back to camp. Uh, My dad 
stayed back behind. He's like, hey, take the boat up there. Uh, you camp overnight on the shore, and I'm going to hang out here, and, and we'll catch up with you t- tomorrow. And so I, I took off, and I thought, okay, I've got to get there before the sun goes down because it's going to get dark. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, I didn't make it. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been on a little ski boat before. They have lights, a little blue and green light out in front, and they have a little white light on the back which basically just allows everybody else to see you, but really doesn't help you see anything else, okay? And so uh, it got pretty scary. It was very dark. Couldn't see anything in front of me. I basically just kind of had the boat barely in gear, and I'm like, okay, Lord, you know, I hope I'm not heading right into, you know, there was a couple different hazard buoys I knew of, and I was like, okay, there's a hazard buoy, I think, coming up here sometime, and big rocks, and I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I was so scared, so uh, really freaked out, okay? Uh, it was pitch black, okay? Um, and I remember being so scared. Um, I remember thinking, I'm going to hit something. I'm never going to find my campsite. And I remember just praying. I stopped, and I was like, Lord Jesus, help me. Uh, and the crazy thing is that it was a very calm night, okay? There was no wind, no waves uh, at all, just this darkness. But that was enough to really freak me out, okay? And maybe I'm just a wimp, but Imagine, if you will, being in that type of situation in complete darkness with the wind howling, okay, with the waves crashing all over you, okay, with water filling in your boat. It would be quite a frightening thing to encounter. And so the disciples, they began to panic. They began to freak out. The more their boat was filled with water, the more their hearts were being filled with fear. Jesus, though, was still sound asleep in the back of the boat. And and I think to myself, what a beautiful picture this creates for us. You see, in the midst of the storm, Jesus is at perfect peace. He is at rest. He isn't panicked. He isn't freaked out. Though the storm rages all around Him, Jesus is calm. He is relaxed. He is still. And I believe the same is true for us when the storms of life come our way and we find ourselves panicking and perhaps freaking out. There is peace and calm before the throne of the Lord. Jesus isn't panicked. He isn't freaking out uh, when things don't go our way. He is calm. He is in control. He is not worried. He is at peace. And He wants to share that peace with us. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. And in Philippians, we are given the exhortation to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Isaiah, in Isaiah 26, verse 3, promises us that God will keep us in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on Him because we trust in Him. Listen, church family, when the storms of life come our way, we can have the peace of God. We can have the peace that surpasses all understanding as we keep our mind set upon Him and we place our trust in Him. Well, the disciples, they were panicking and they came to Jesus. They woke Him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. In Matthew's account, it is recorded that they said, Lord, save us, we are perishing. In Mark's Gospel, it says that the disciples questioned Jesus, 
saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There were 12 different disciples, and so uh, there would be different responses from this group of men. Now remember something important. A good chunk of these disciples are seasoned fishermen. Okay? It wasn't like these were some timid landlubbers. Okay? We know that they were accustomed to sailing these types of boats. These waters were familiar to them as well. I'm sure this wasn't the first time they found themselves in a storm out on the lake. And we even know that in other portions of Scripture that they would go out during the evening time for mention is made on a couple of instances of the disciples fishing all night and catching nothing. And so this had to be quite the storm to get these guys riled up and in a panic to where they were fearful of losing their very lives. Well, let's see what happens next. Continue the end of verse 24. It says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? We'll stop right there. Jesus arose. He rebuked the wind, the raging of the water. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus declared, Peace, be still. And at the word of Christ, the wind and the waves ceased. There was a calm upon the sea. You see, the disciples were freaked out and they were panicking. They were fearful of their lives and they came to Jesus and he was able to calm the storm. Jesus is the one who can calm the storms. And bring peace to our lives even in the most difficult of circumstances. When the wind is howling and the waves are crashing and the boat is filling and we feel like we are perishing, Jesus is there to calm the storm and to bring to us the peace that can only come from Him. He calms the storms in our lives. And so remember to come to Jesus when the storms of life begin to form, when the winds start to blow and the clouds begin to develop. Okay, look to Jesus to be the one to calm your heart and mind and to see you through safely to the other side. Jesus responded to the disciples asking the question, where is your faith? We're told in Matthew's account that he also asked why they were so fearful in Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus asked about two things. He asked about their fear, and he asked about their faith. And these two things, they are greatly connected. They feared because they didn't have faith. Faith in what? You may be thinking to yourself. Let me suggest two things to you here, okay? The first thing they lacked faith in was Jesus' word. What did Jesus say before they left? He said, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, let's try and see if we'll make it to the other side. Or I don't know if we'll make it, but let's give it our best effort. No, he said, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. The disciples lacked faith in the word of Jesus. The other thing they lacked faith in was when they doubted Jesus' care for them. One of the things they said to Jesus was, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In this statement, they showed a lack of faith in Jesus' care for them, His love towards them. And whenever we allow ourselves to think that Jesus doesn't care about us, it shows a lack of faith on our part. 
Jesus cares deeply for us. His love for us is immeasurable. He went to the cross for us to demonstrate His great love and His great care for us according to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And so whenever we find ourselves doubting whether or not Jesus cares about us, whether He loves us or not, we are showing a lack of faith. These disciples, they showed a lack of faith in God's Word and God's love for them, both of which are sure and should never be doubted. Let's finish out this section reading the remainder of verse 25. It says, And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. When it was all said and done, the disciples were even more afraid when the wind was blowing and the waves, then when the wind, excuse me, they were even more afraid than when the wind was blowing and the waves were crashing. After seeing Jesus' power over the wind and waves, they marveled at Jesus. They were filled with even more fear than before. But this, however, was a good fear. It was a healthy awe and reverence towards Jesus Christ. And they pondered amongst themselves saying, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. You see, a part of their lack of faith also hinged upon their incomplete knowledge of who Jesus was. Not only was there doubt in God's word and God's love, but there was an incomplete knowledge of Jesus' identity as Lord. When we experience the storms of life, we must remember God's word to us, his promises. We must remember God's love for us, and we must remember who God is. In the midst of chaos and storms of life, we can sometimes respond like the disciples here. We can freak out, we can panic, and we can start to ask similar types questions as these disciples asked, where are you, Lord? Okay? Don't you know that I'm dying here? Okay? Don't you care about me? Are you just going to sit there and sleep and do nothing while I perish? We ask these types of questions when we forget about who God is. And we forget about His promises. And we forget about His love toward us. The Lord is with you. He promises He will never leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. God knows your struggles and He will see you through them and He will make a way for you to escape. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 promises us. God cares for you and He promises that His grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. God is active in your life. He is working all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. When things seem out of control and crazy, remember who God is. Remember His great love for you and remember His great promises towards you. Let's continue to our next section. Here we will see that Jesus not only has power over the physical world, but the spiritual world as well. Take a look at verses 26 and 27 with me. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. We'll pause right there. Our account picks up with Jesus and the disciples finally making it to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gadarenes, which was opposite of Galilee. 
It would seem that the event described here took place in the early uh, morning. So it is likely that Jesus and his disciples spent the rest of the evening in the boat getting some rest before coming to shore. And as soon as Jesus stepped foot out of the boat, a man that was under demonic possession came out to meet Jesus. And we're given some details about this man. We're told that he has been under demonic possession for a lengthy period of time. For a very long time, he's uh, been under this influence. Also, we're told that he wore no clothes. Okay? He went around uh, naked. And we're told that he was homeless. Okay? He didn't live in a house, but in and amongst the tombs of that particular area. I do not find it surprising to think that demons would feel more at home around the dead than around the living. Let's continue. We're going to learn a little bit more about this man. Verse 28 and 29. It says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Here we are given more information about this demon-possessed man. When Jesus saw him, we are informed that Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. We're also told that this demon had often seized the man and that the man was kept under guard. He was bound with chains and shackles. Evidently, the people from that area tried many times to keep him under wraps. However, the chains could not keep him. For he was able to break free from them, and the demon drove the man into the wilderness. You guys, I want you to consider all these details about this man that we are given. The horrible state this man has been driven to as a result of this demonic influence upon his life. We know that a good chunk of his life has been consumed by this demonic presence. Okay? It had been a lengthy time for him. The man was stripped of his dignity as he was forced to roam the area naked. He lost his home and instead now resided amongst the dead in tombs. Mark's gospel gives us even more information, tells us that day and night he cried out and he would cut himself with stones. So he was self-destructive and he was tormented day and night. And all of this is, is very tragic, but it should come as no surprise to us because demons do as their leader does. You see, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Okay? And the Scriptures describe him, describe him as our adversary, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And his followers, they desire to do the same, to destroy us to devour our lives. Listen, you and I, we are made in the image of God and Satan and his minions would love nothing more than to mar that image, to scar that image, to destroy that image. Church family, I must exhort you, encourage you, speak bluntly with you. The spiritual realm is real. Okay? The spiritual battle is real. 
Paul writes to the church in Ephesus about this battle. He writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Make no mistake about it, church family, the battle is real and it is being waged all around us. And Paul continues exhorting us there in Ephesians. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Paul tells us that we are to engage this spiritual battle, that we are to put on spiritual armor, that we are to uh, withstand, to stand our ground, to resist the attacks of the enemy. James chapter 4, verse 7 tells us that if we resist the devil, that he will flee from us. And the way that we do this is by putting on our spiritual armor as described in Ephesians 6, by girding ourselves with truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, our salvation in Christ, the word of God, which is described as the sword of the spirit, and we're to pray with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Listen, you guys. The spiritual realm is a battleground, and yet we see today in this world we live in that it is often seen as a playground. The demonic is glamorized. Hollywood glamorizes things of the occult. Demons, witches, ghosts, vampires, and the like are all romanticized and glorified. Kids are encouraged to play with and become familiar with this sort of stuff. It's seen as merely entertainment, something harmless and fun. Hey, listen up, church family. Be careful. Be very, very careful. Okay? The world wants to package these things as harmless and fun, but there is a very real danger when it comes to entertaining ourselves with these sorts of things. We need to be on guard. We need to be aware of the dangers that these things can bring into our lives and into our kids' lives as we allow them to partake of certain things. Be careful. The demon-possessed man came to Jesus and fell down before him, prostrating himself on the ground, shouting out, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. I find it worth noting here that the demon-possessed man knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. He knew that Jesus had a divine nature, that he acknowledged him as being God. He was also aware that Jesus would one day torment him. Interestingly enough, Matthew's Gospel includes a few other words that the demon said. Matthew records the demon as saying, Have you come here to torment us before the time, Matthew eight twenty nine, the demon knew that there was a time coming where Jesus would come and torment these spiritual beings when they would be cast into the lake of fire well, there, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Here we see a demon that recognizes who Jesus is He recognizes Jesus' authority over him and bows before him. And he understands the fate of those who come against Jesus. But listen, he's nowhere near being saved. And this is interesting to consider in light of how some people think today. Some people can have the right theology, knowing who God is. They can have the right doxology, knowing how to give 
proper praise. And even have the right eschatology, knowing that God will ultimately overcome evil in the end and still not be saved. James 2.19 tells us, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You see, believing a list of facts or even understanding mentally the facts surrounding the gospel is not the same as surrendering to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It is not the same as placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Having the right theology, having the right doxology, even having the right eschatology does not save you. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that is what saves you. Repenting and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is what saves us, not a bunch of intellectual facts. The truth of the matter is, if a person hasn't placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then their final resting place will be the same as that of this unclean spirit. A place described as hell in the Bible, a place none of us would ever want to be. Let's continue our account. We'll see what happens next. Verse 30. It says, Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. We'll pause right there real fast. Jesus asked the man for his name, and the response given was Legion, for we're told that many demons had entered him. The word Legion is actually a military term. Uh, A legion was the largest division of troops within the Roman army and usually numbered around 6,000 members. Evidently, this man was not just possessed by one demon, but by many demons, perhaps even thousands of demons. The demons begged Jesus that he would not command them to go into the abyss. This word abyss speaks of a very specific place. It's not just and we might think like into the deep, you know, uh, but this is a very specific place. It's used nine times in the New Testament, this word, seven of which are found in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, it is translated as the bottomless pit. Okay, Revelation 20 speaks of how the devil will be bound and cast into this bottomless pit for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. This is not the lake of fire. Okay, this is more of a holding cell, a prison in which evil powers are confined for a set amount of time before they face their ultimate fate in the lake of fire. Jesus does not plan on sending them into the abyss at this moment. Remember, Jesus is operating upon a divine timeline, and the time for their judgment was not at Heim. He knew their time would come, but he knew it was not that day. Let's continue. Verse 32, it says, Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the command and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. The demons begged Jesus that they not be sent out of the country, out of that area, uh, into the abyss, and they asked for permission to be sent into a herd of swine that were there in the mountainous area feeding. Now, if you know your Old Testament law, you'll know something important about swine, about pigs. Okay? Leviticus chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, details to the Israelites why swine was considered an unclean animal for them. Okay? They were not permitted to eat it. They were not even permitted to touch their carcasses. So 
no pork ribs, no sausage, no bacon, okay? They were forbidden. Perhaps the unclean spirits thought they would find a suitable home in an unclean animal like swine. Whatever reason they wanted to go there, we're not sure. Interestingly, Jesus permitted the demons to go into the swine. He granted to them their petition, and he gave permission to enter the swine. As a result, the demons fleeing into the swine, the entire herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned. We're told from the other gospel accounts that there were about 2,000 swine. Perhaps this is further evidence of the great number of demons that had taken possession of this man. Now, some people speculate as to why Jesus would allow the spirit, these evil spirits, unclean spirits, to enter the swine. Listen, the text doesn't tell us. So all we can really do is speculate. And some suggest that Jesus did so to prove to the spectators and to the demon-possessed man that the demons had indeed departed and that they could be seen in the action of the swine, that they would know, like, yes, they're completely gone. Look, you can tell that they're over there in that swine. And so that would give to the demon-possessed man a sense of relief. No, they are gone. They've left me. Others suggest that Jesus was trying to show that the true intentions of the demons and ultimately Satan, that all they want to do is to destroy lives. It could then serve as a warning to those around the, uh, there of the severity of sin and the danger of entertaining these types of demonic beings. While still others suggest that Jesus was simply killing two birds with one stone, that he was able to deal with the unclean spirit as well as the unclean animals in one swift action. Uh, usually proponents of this theory suggest that perhaps the herdsmen could have been Jewish, and shouldn't have had anything to do with swine in the first place, or that these were Gentile herdsmen looking to market their product to a Jewish population around the Sea of Galilee. Again, all this is speculation, okay? We can't answer the question of why Jesus allowed this to happen, okay? Because the text simply doesn't tell us why. So we have to just leave it as that. For whatever reason, there are a few possibilities, but we don't know why Jesus would allow this to happen. Let's take a look at the next section, verse 34. It says, When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the gatherings asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. We'll stop right there. Those who fed and, and watched over the swine, they went into the city and all throughout the country telling everyone what had happened to the swine and the demon-possessed man. And one would think this was a good thing. People going throughout the land telling people about what Jesus did. How the man whose life had been tormented for years by demons had been healed. The man they used to try to shackle and chain had been delivered. No longer will he terrorize the people or the visitors that come to their shores. As word spread, many people came out to see what had happened for themselves. The people that came were not just a small crowd. No, Matthew's account tells us, and behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Matthew 8.34 Again, we would think this is a good thing. People heard about Jesus. They wanted to come out to see for themselves all that he had done and to meet Jesus. When the crowd arrived on scene, they saw the man who was once possessed, sitting and clothed and in his right mind. The people saw the results of Jesus performing a miraculous healing and deliverance of the man who was formerly possessed. 
the man that terrorized their shores, the man that had tried several times, they had tried several times to shackle and chain, the man they tried to tame as if he was some wild animal, the man who cried out day and night because of torment, the man who constantly cut himself upon the stones and ran around the area naked. He sat still. He was clothed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And their immediate response was fear. They were afraid. The eyewitness accounts of what had transpired were given, and the people, instead of welcoming Jesus in, they asked him to leave, to depart. It would seem that these people had a major problem. It would seem that they were more concerned with the pigs that were destroyed than the person that was delivered. They cared more about the possessions of this world than the people of this world. Instead of being excited about the man's life that was delivered from great bondage, they were afraid and they asked Jesus to leave. This is amazing to consider. Jesus had demonstrated his power over the spiritual realm, the supernatural. And instead of welcoming him in or worshiping him, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. And they let their fear keep them from embracing the greatest gift ever given to mankind. And we learn an important lesson from these people about fear. We cannot allow fear to keep us from surrendering to Jesus. You know, some people are honestly fearful of living a life fully committed to the Lord. They're fearful of what Jesus may ask of them. They're fearful of what they may have to give up. They're fearful of losing things that they deem valuable. Listen, all of these fears are tactics of the enemy. We don't need to be afraid of living for Jesus. Hey, listen, he may ask things of you that are fearful, but he promises that he'll be with us every step of the way. He may have you give up things in life, but He'll replace them with things that are much better. And He may have you realign your value system, but we can trust that He knows what is best. These people let fear keep them from the biggest blessing they could have ever received. Don't make the same mistake. Don't let fear keep you from the blessing of following full-heartedly after the Lord. Let's wrap up our text this morning. Look at our final verses once again. Verse 37, the very end, it says, He got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. This is very interesting to consider this last portion here. Jesus was asked by the multitude of demons if they could be sent into the swine, and Jesus allowed it. He granted their petition. Jesus was then asked by the people of the area to leave their region, and he obliged their request. But here we see the man who was touched by the Lord wanted to stay with Jesus and to be with him, but Jesus said no. Jesus granted the request of the demons who did the bidding of Satan, he granted the request of the non-believing multitude that lacked any sort of compassion. 
But he denied the request of the one that was touched by him and was delivered and simply wanted to be with him. And it begs the question, why? Why would Jesus grant the petition of of demons? Why would he willingly go along with these non-believing people and, and, and leave them, grant them their petition? But this man that had been touched impacted in an incredible way who just wanted to be by Jesus' side. He said, no. Why? It was because Jesus had something else that he wanted the delivered man to do. He had a mission for him, a work that he wanted the man to complete before he could be with the Lord by his side for the rest of his days. Jesus wanted the man to go and tell everyone he knew about what the Lord had done for him. He wanted the man to tell everyone about how compassionate the Lord had been towards him. And that is exactly what the man did. He went throughout the whole city and he spread the word about all that Jesus had done for him. Listen, you guys, we are in the same situation as this delivered man. We too were once in bondage. We too were once tormented by our sin, but Jesus had compassion on us and he delivered us from the penalty of sin and death. And while we may think how great it would be to just be with the Lord, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I think, man, wouldn't it be just be awesome if the Lord would call, call us home right now? And we would just be with Jesus in heaven. That would be so awesome. Lord, that's what I want. I often find myself praying, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Come soon, right? We can understand the desire of this man, okay? But we also understand Paul's words when he says to the church in Philippi, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which he says is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. We understand the desire of this man to simply be by Jesus' side, to be in his presence. But God hasn't called us home just yet to be with him. In the meantime, Just like the delivered man in our text this morning, Jesus has a mission for us. He wants us to tell as many people as possible possible about all that the Lord has done in our life. To tell all the people we know about the compassion that God has shown us throughout our days. You and I have something to share. It is our testimony And our testimony is our account of God's working in our lives. It is our description of all that the Lord has done for us. It is our depiction of the compassion God has shown us. And God wants us to share it with all the people we know, just like this man from the gatherings. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time as we can just go through here and we, we kind of learn about just faith and in action and, and overcoming fear, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women of faith, that we would not allow fear to, to keep us from following after you, Lord, from receiving you living our lives fully unto you, Lord, that we wouldn't allow fear to uh, cause us to doubt you, to doubt your word, to doubt your love for us. Lord, that we would remain in faith and trust and know 
who you are, know your love for us, know your word towards us. Lord, I do pray that we would be like this delivered man, that we would complete the mission that you have for us. Lord, we long to be by your side, that we long to be with you, we long for eternity, Lord, but yet you've chosen to keep us here that we might share with all those around us the wonderful things that you've done in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask, embolden us, strengthen us. Lord, may we not be timid. May we not allow fear to keep us from proclaiming the wonderful works that you've done in our hearts and lives, to keep us from proclaiming the wonderful work that your son Jesus Christ did upon the cross of Calvary for each and every one of us. Lord, lead and guide us by your Spirit. Lord, may we operate by faith. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.